0: they're always gonna say, well, in an emergency, a rule is not gonna work, right? And this is where we get back to the 2008 financial crisis. You know, uh, President Bush very famously said, and I am, obviously have made a decision to make sure the economy doesn't collapse. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. Uh, wow. And this is, this is really what got me interested in the 2008 financial crisis in the first place, because most of the coverage was that markets had failed you have president bush saying it you have hank paulson who says he's a market guy coming in and doing all this stuff and so the story as you alluded to in some of your opening remarks was capitalism gone wrong right it's sort of greed and financial engineering and deregulation and this was just markets running run amok because there wasn't enough oversight there wasn't enough government control and i I had a question about that.
1: On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Paul Mueller, who recently joined AIER as senior research faculty to discuss the 2007-2008 financial crisis and its reverberation into our present day.
0: For people who don't remember the details as well, everything we're seeing around us, all of this, in many ways, is a fallout from that crisis.
1: Paul received his PhD in economics from George Mason University and is the author of Ten Years Later why the conventional wisdom about the 2008 financial crisis is still wrong. We get into the misregulation, cronyism and fatal conceit that precipitated the crisis, how it was mismanaged by government and central banks and then became the catalyst for a growing anti-capitalist sentiment that blames free markets for the failures of an increasingly controlled financial system and economy. the effects of the 2007-2008 crisis are i think important to study important to examine and also i think one of the most important points about it is that it changed the perception of people about what how markets worked and how they failed. And a lot of people at that point blamed capitalism, they blamed free markets um, for causing all of this mess. And since then, we've seen a lot of anti-capitalist sentiment rising. We've seen collectivism rising. So I'll let you talk now, Paul. What do you think uh, a good place to start is to unravel all of that?
0: Well, you know, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I think you're you're right on that. So I think a good place to start is to think about why the 2008 financial crisis matters uh, both then and now. And it, it really was a defining – a generation-defining event. And even if people don't remember the details, the ins and outs of what was going on in the stock market or this firm failing or that firm failing, we're all living with the repercussions, with the uh, the political polarization really ratcheted up. Post two thousand eight, income and wealth inequality like that, that conversation that always had sort of been there you know throughout history but it that really grew dramatically with the Occupy Wall Street the one percent Main Street Wall Street divide the Tea Party movement the the more kind of right wing response to the government bailout money and so so we're living with the echoes of this crisis. Socially and politically, but we're also living in the shadow of the 2008 financial crisis when it comes to the economy and and to government spending. But let's focus first on the economy. Through 2008, the Federal Reserve basically threw out the script for how central banks do monetary policy. Right? They they changed their framework. That the, everything was on the table. And and post 2008 people have had to rewrite money and banking textbooks because the Fed is now doing something different than it did for the previous hundred years of its existence. Um, And that has allowed the Fed to be far more activist in markets in the financial world than they used to be. So they've bought literally trillions and trillions of dollars of assets. And that affects, uh, it's what we call capital allocation. It's, It's sort of a backdoor, almost fiscal policy. So they are buying trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities. So that sends funding into the mortgage markets and distorts interest rates and mortgage lending from 2008 to today. Uh, Government debt, they bought tremendous amounts of government debt, and they pushed interest rates artificially low to near zero for almost a decade. Uh, And as we've discussed before, that has had a profound effect on how people in Washington think about spending and how they think about whether the budget needs to be balanced, how burdensome is the national debt, and if you look, you you have that run up to COVID, and then you hit COVID and this crisis moment, and all of a sudden you've got both the Trump administration and then the Biden administration, lit- adding literal trillions of additional dollars of spending. Like they're already the government's already spending trillions of dollars, but it's adding additional trillions, and so. The national debt has gone from, whatever, $20 trillion 10 years ago to like $33 trillion. So in a decade, we've added well over $10 trillion of debt, with most of that being in the last four years. Uh, That's only possible in a world where the interest that the federal government has to pay on that debt is very very low and that is a result of the Federal Reserve again throwing out the playbook, pushing interest rates super low, engaging in um, quantitative easing other kinds of stuff and so we get a little bit farfield into monetary stuff now but all of that is a very direct consequence of the crisis, how you know Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson and others interpreted what caused the crisis, what they needed to do to, to deal with it and again, so for for people who don't remember the details as well, everything we're seeing around us all of this in many ways is a fallout from that crisis
1: so paul what did it look like before before that crisis like how did the fed how did the treasury how did they kind of interact with the economy before the crisis i mean the fed uh began with the federal reserve act was 1913 right Mm -hmm. yep so what You know what happened you also talk about in your book actually 1907 there was some kind of crisis which probably Mm -hmm. even led to the fed being created itself right so we can go back in history and kind of look at how we've got here you know depending how far we want to go backwards but let's Mm -hmm. just say you know starting from the fed in 1913 to 2007 what changed in the way that they were interacting with the economy and with with money
0: Sure. Well, you know, at the the risk of painting too broad a brush, um, the Federal Reserve didn't really know at all what it was doing through the Great Depression. And, and And many played Milton Friedman very famously and powerfully made the case that the Fed worsened the Great Depression pretty significantly by restricting monetary policy, by restricting liquidity unnecessarily. And, and that actually is relevant because Ben Bernanke, who is the chair of the Fed during this crisis, famously gave a toast at Milton Friedman's like 98th birthday or 100th birthday party. He gave a toast and he was a governor of the Fed at the time. And he said to Milton Friedman, he said, you were right. We were to blame. We're really sorry, but we won't do it again. And if you look at the conversations, the Great Depression is mentioned in 2008. Hank Paulson tells Congress, if you don't pass the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP bailout program, we're going to enter a Great Depression. And Ben Bernanke is literally like, there will not be a Great Depression on my watch. And what happened in the Great Depression? The Fed didn't do enough or it tightened too much. Uh, and so there's kind of a, this reverse, you know, not wanting to it, to, to do that, um, run into the same kind of problem. So mm-hmm. anyway, so they didn't really know what they were doing. They screwed up a lot into the Great Depression. Post-Great Depression, so post-Great Depression, World War II, was kind of the the quiet period, if you will. Thing the economy was doing well, interest rates were fairly stable, um, monetary policy was fairly tame until we hit the seventies, where we've got this sort of stagflation going on and then Volcker comes in and Reagan and the, the stagflation is you know, goes away. We have low inflation again. But to, to give you a sense, to answer your question, the, the 20 to 30 years prior to the two thousand eight financial crisis, let's say 20 years, basically is the Alan Greenspan era, who was called the maestro. And in the Greenspan era, the Fed basically followed what economist John Taylor describes as a rule-like behavior. That is to say, if you look at changes in the, the federal funds rate, the interest rate that they target in monetary policy, it tends to move based on fairly objective economic criteria, what's going on with inflation, what's going on with unemployment, what's going on with growth. There are different targets and gaps. And there's something that John Taylor put together that we call the Taylor Rule that basically describes, okay, if we overshoot growth and the economy is overheating, then we should raise interest rates a little bit. If we have too high of inflation relative to our target, then we should be ratcheting up interest rates. And then the reverse, if growth is too low or inflation is too low, so you have this what's called this kind of rule, where the federal funds rate is moving incrementally, you know, small amounts in response to real economic data. And post 2008, that's not the case anymore. It's moving. They they drop it, you know, one and a half percent over four months. They create all these new liquidity programs, and then right now. They're just sort of ratcheting up interest rates in the hope that inflation will go away without any kind of rule. It's just sort of we kind of know these things are related, and we hope that something will work. Uh, there's there's no kind of rule or or clarity around the the parameters for why we increase the interest rate or how much we increase the interest rate or decrease the rate. It really is we're looking at some indicators and we're going about going by how we feel, uh, and and that's not really a great way to run monetary policy for a massive economy.
1: Would there not also be, though, like political incentives or other things that are driving the behavior that looks like, you know, there's no reason or there's no method to the madness, but maybe there's other pressures that they face uh, or maybe like a change in ideology?
0: Yeah, that's true. And there's been a lot of in the scholarly literature, there's a lot of conversation about whether the Fed, the Federal Reserve is independent of political yeah. pressure—that is to say, they do what they think—or th- it's dependent on the political process. And my own view is, you know, the Fed is more independent than many central banks, but is hardly perfectly independent. They are but, affected by political pressures.
1: But I mean, even if they are independent, that could still be problematic as well because they have an immense amount of power, and if they're not, you know, connected to to politics uh, and and to people we select to make these decisions, then, I mean, that it's almost like a lose-lose situation in a sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, so on the one hand, you don't want them bowing to temporary political pressure to make bad decisions. But on the other hand, they're not accountable to the electorate for making bad decisions. So I I see what you're saying. I think... um... Yeah, I think it's an issue. I mean, this is why conservatives, libertarians for decades have pushed for kind of rules-based monetary policy, something that is clear. So, Friedman had a had a rule, John Taylor has a rule, you know, some of the the nominal GDP targeting folks have kind of a rule or structure. So, in many ways it probably matters less what the specific rule is than it is just having some rule and and really removing a lot of that discretion from the the Federal Reserve, the FOMC's hands. Uh, And it's hard because they have a lot of power. They obviously don't want that. And Mm. they're always going to say, well, in an emergency, a rule is not going to work, right? And this is where we get back to the 2008 financial crisis. uh, President Bush very famously said, we have to abandon the free market to save the free market. Uh, wow. And this is, this is really what got me interested in the 2008 financial crisis in the first place because most of the coverage was that markets had failed. You have President Bush saying it. You have Hank Paulson who says he's a market guy coming in and doing all this stuff. And so the story, as you alluded to in some of your opening remarks, the story is that the 2008 financial crisis was capitalism gone wrong, right? It's sort of greed and financial engineering and deregulation and this was just markets run, run amok because there wasn't enough oversight. There wasn't enough government control. And I had a question about that coming out of college. I was like, is that true? Like, I'm really pro markets, but like, did markets just blow up here and fail? And, you know, that would be that would I have to rethink a lot of things if that's the case. And as I've studied it, I think that it's more complicated. And I think that really government has m- most of the blame, right? Like, yes. You have market actors, you have profit-seeking, you have financial engineering, you have fraud. All those things that people point to were happening, but they don't really ask the in a serious way, why were those things happening? Why was Countrywide issuing all of these low quality mortgages? Why were they falsifying records? Why were they engaged in fraud? Why was Wall Street packaging all of these mortgages into mortgage backed securities? Why were banks loading up on mortgage backed securities? So, like all of the 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 bad market behavior people talk about, like a lot of that was happening. Like you have a lot of recklessness, bad risk taking, bad decisions, greed, it's all there. But it doesn't really give us the analytical, why is this happening? And when you study the incentives and the rules and the whole framework, you find that, that the story, in my view, is really misregulation, that, that regulators, intentional or unintentionally, for decades, really laid the groundwork for this financial crisis. And then in the, in the crisis itself their responses and their their ways of dealing with it were highly inconsistent highly uncertain created a lot of panic and made things much worse than they needed to be even with the decades of of misregulation that had happened too
1: okay so part of the why then is misregulation um is that the whole story or could you maybe explain more what you mean exactly by misregulation like what kinds of things sure. answer the why
0: Yes, absolutely. I'll give you a few examples. So, I think probably the, the 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 biggest thing that matters here, right? If you think about the 2008 financial crisis, the the as the superstructure is the building, like all the financial market stuff is the building, the foundation were mortgages, right? And so that's why people call it the subprime mortgage crisis or mortgage backed securities. So mortgages were this kind of foundation that all this financial engineering was built upon mortgage backed securities, CDOs, other kinds of financial instruments. And so let's look at the foundation. Let's look at mortgages. Up until from from like the 1960s to the early 1990s, the, the home mortgage market in the US was fairly standard and fairly vanilla, almost every mortgage, we're talking 99% of mortgages were 30 years, fixed interest rates for the length of the mortgage, 20% down payment as a minimum uh, with people to people with good FICO credit scores. And so you have this very sort of uniform, vanilla mortgage market. And guess what? It performed in a very vanilla way. It was very predictable. Defaults never rose very much. Uh, Bankruptcies were never a big problem. They were very stable, It worked really well. Um, And then what happens in the early 90s, and there's different threads here, but the Community Reinvestment Act is the, the legislation. And then the Clinton administration comes in and gives this, the Community Reinvestment Act teeth. And basically, through the legislation, and then through the Department of Housing and Urban Development, there was a concerted push by politicians and by regulators to try to make mortgage credit more available to people with lower incomes, with lower credit scores, who normally wouldn't qualify for a mortgage. And to make that work, they had to get, shall we say, creative, right? They started lowering the down payment that was required. They started changing the duration of the mortgage. They created. Uh, what we call adjustable rate mortgages, where your mortgage begins at a certain interest rate for a year or two, and then the interest rate ratchets up in year three or year four uh, based on what's going on in the market. And so you have, in four or five different categories, a, a concerted effort to basically water down or lower the underwriting standards for mortgages to make them more available to people who are more risky, more or less. And so you have this as goes on over, over the course of a decade, Congress is involved with what they tell Fannie and Freddie to do, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to do, uh, the regulators are involved. There's a whole bunch of different pieces here, but it's a concerted effort to try to create more access to housing for disadvantaged groups or higher risk groups. And what that ends up doing is that that's going on and that works fine as long as housing prices are rising, because if people get into trouble, they can sell or if their house goes up in value they can refinance right the the mm-hmm. rising home prices papers over lots of bad risk or problems in the mortgage origination and so this builds the mortgage market builds and then the house of cards comes tumbling down in 2007 as interest rates begin to rise and housing prices plateau all of a sudden people can't refinance they can't sell the house for what they bought it for. In fact, maybe their their house is losing value. They didn't put much money into it in the first place, so they're underwater. That is to say they owe more on the house than the house is worth in the market. Mm-hmm. So people, especially in the sand states where there were very little consequences to walking away from a mortgage, would just walk away from the house. they give the keys back to the bank. They'd extinguish the mortgage. And so defaults began to go through the roof. And everything that was built on these mortgages, all the financial instruments, the financial engineering Collapsed as the the underlying uh, asset collapsed in value, and there's a whole bunch of reasons about how that that superstructure got built, but that's one main area of misregulation, very intentional misregulation. I'll give you just a second one, very or two more, but they'll be very quick. Um, the second area of misregulation has to do with something kind of esoteric called uh, capital requirements, like banks. Financial regulation requires banks to hold certain amounts of capital reserves against certain assets that the banks hold in case those assets go bad. And these rules are put together by um, the Bank of International Settlements. Sometimes they're called Basel rules because the the bank meets Mm. in Basel, Switzerland. So you've got these Basel rules. There's been three iterations of them. Uh, And then the SEC and the Fed implement them here in the U.S., But these rules, these Basel rules, the international capital rules basically said to banks if you make a commercial loan, you have to hold, you know, at various times 8% capital against that loan. If you issue a mortgage to someone, and you hold that mortgage on your books, that's an asset you need to hold 4% capital against that mortgage. But if you buy mortgage backed securities, right, this engineered product built on a whole pool of mortgages, if you buy that mortgage backed security, of a certain quality from the rating agencies, you only have to hold 2% capital. And so they encouraged banks to buy these mortgage-backed securities because they could hold a lot less capital relative to the assets that they're holding. And by the way, to get into the political dimensions of this, you, can, you I don't know if you know what the 0% capital tranche was, right? There were some assets you didn't have to hold any capital against. And that category was government debt. Sovereign debt. So if you yeah. were holding U.S. Treasuries or German bonds or Greek bonds, right? Because it mm. was any it was any government like in the EU. So you hold any. So whether German bonds or Greek bonds, like those are somehow identical, right? You don't have to hold any capital against it. And this, by the way, is one of the connections between the financial crisis here in the U.S. and the European crisis, like the the Greek debt crisis that went yes, on the year or two remember after. That. Yeah. It's fueled by these same capital standards that encourage banks to hold to, – to lend money to Greece because they didn't have to hold any capital against it because that was safe, right? So that's another example of this kind of misregulation where the, the rules and the incentives lead market actors to make bad decisions in a similar kind of way or a, a systemic way because of the, the underlying framework.
1: Okay, so before you go on to any other examples, I have some questions about those ones for sure. All right. Because I did not know that. So, all right, so the BIS, okay, so this is interesting, uh-huh. the Bank of International Settlement, Settlements. How, you know, what exactly do they do? They are, I've heard that they are the central bank of central banks. What, what kind of power do they have or what kind of mm-hmm. sway do they have or you know, what's their role in this whole thing?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so I'm not an expert on Bank of International Settlements, but basically speaking, it, 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 my understanding is it is kind of like a clearinghouse. So you have central banks in different – like every country has its own central bank all over the world. Uh, and those those central banks do a lot of cooperation. They have credit lines. They swap currencies. There's a lot of coordination and monetary policy post-Bretton Woods, uh, post-World War II and but but no central bank even the federal reserve is not the world central bank if you will like the, the, the it's not as if the bank of japan and the bank of england as they interact with each other are running things through the federal reserve right that's not how it works so you need a kind of umbrella organization to kind of help facilitate all these transactions between central banks again swap lines currency um you know, sending currency to each other. And so I think the Bank of International Settlements was created to facilitate a lot of this, trans, a lot of these transactions between government or between uh, country central banks. And and the other thing that it does, and this is where the Basel rules come in, is there's mm-hmm. this, this concerted effort, and I'm sure you're aware of a lot of this, it's in a lot of different areas, but there's this concerted effort to create global standards For everything, right? Global standards for emissions and global standards for risk-taking in credit markets and global standards for ESG. Uh, And so the BIS is part of this globalist community, if you will, that is trying to standardize – the requirements or the practices or the rules around financial risk and banking. And so that's why they work very closely with the Federal Reserve and the Office of the Comptroller and other agencies in the U.S.
1: I'm sure most of our audience will know because there was that viral clip about um, somebody working at the BIS who was talking about how CBDCs would grant absolute control. I don't know if you recall seeing that uh, that whole thing and I, i'm just asking because I, I wonder i know it's a little bit of a tangent from talking about this whole crisis but to try and get a bigger picture of how these you, these things spread out across the world like as you were saying there was the european financial crisis at the same time you know yep. and so so what are all of these kind of levers and pulleys uh, that are that are being pushed and pulled and used Uh, And that end up causing all kinds of disasters for people. And then later, it can be said, oh, well, it's because of capitalism. It's because of free markets. But in reality, behind the scenes, you have like all of this kind of control and all of this management and mismanagement going on and all of these incentives uh, for all of these different organizations and institutions to do things, I guess, that will benefit them. Um, But maybe they just... Is it just that, Paul, they don't see the consequences of these kinds of things, like mortgage-backed securities, for example, or the kind of Mm -hmm. uh, things that the BIS was doing during that time? Is it that they don't see what the consequences might be? Uh, Do they think that this is good practice? What are their incentives for doing things that end up panning (coughs) out in disastrous ways for the rest of us?
0: Yeah, uh, I I tend to be more on the the ignorant side than the sinister side of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um you know Hayek wrote a famous book called The Fatal Conceit, and mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a lot to that—the fatal conceit of people thinking they know a lot more than they do. So I think I don't think that a lot of central banks are intentionally creating all these problems, like uh, knowingly doing it. I I do think there's this fatal conceit. There is a lot of, there are a lot of special interests involved. So I'll give you an example of these special interests. So you know, Greece got into all this trouble, like floating their debt. Basically, people don't want to lend them money anymore. They couldn't print money because they're part of the euro system. So they were in a bind. And the IMF kind of put together, and the 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 European Central Bank and the IMF put together like a bailout plan for Greece, the country of Greece. And the Germans had to get on board because they're influential in both organizations. And the Germans got on board and said, yeah, we'll, we'll back this bailout plan. And you have to ask the question, well, but why would the Germans want to transfer tremendous amounts of money to Greece to help them deal with their budget problems when Germany is doing well and you know they're much more fiscally conservative, if you will, than Greece? Well, so you ask that question and then you ask the other question, OK, who are the primary bondholders – that the Greek government owes money to and will not pay if they default. Oh, it turns out German banks were the largest holders of Greek debt. So now all of a sudden it makes sense why the German government got on board with the bailout because they actually have you know tens of billions of euros at stake in their banking system that's tied to Greece. And so these, these webs get very complicated very quickly. Um, and the same thing happens in the U.S. Here, like the Federal Reserve holding huge amounts of assets, the the, the complication we're going to see over the next couple of years is the interaction between the cost of servicing U.S. government debt and pressure on the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates to reduce that cost. Because if interest rates stay at five percent for any for you know a year or a year and a half, that's going to add five hundred billion to a trillion dollars of extra interest costs that the federal government has to pay annually on its current debt, just having that at 5% as opposed to, say, 2.5% or 2%. So the, there's going to be very interesting political dynamics involved here, uh, just like that that German-Greek bailout. There's some interesting dynamics there. The, again, the same thing happens. This is just an example from my book from the 2008 financial crisis. You know, Lehman Brothers fails. The, they let Lehman Brothers go bankrupt. And then mm-hmm. the next day – they bail out AIG Insurance Group with a, with a, a massive bailout. Um, why is that? Well, again, I, like I said, it's I, I'm laying on the ignorant side, but sometimes it's hard not to get conspiratorial. Uh, well, they give all this money to AIG. It's not really for AIG. They, they give AIG $80 billion, and then like $70 billion of it goes right out the door to people that AIG owes money to, right? The other side of the, these credit default swaps and so forth. Well, who are the major holders of the credit default swaps? Well, um, Goldman Sachs is the biggest. So the bailout of AIG is actually an indirect bailout or transfer of money to Goldman Sachs, of course, where Hank Paulson came from. Now, was Paulson just trying to benefit his buddies? I, I wouldn't say that. But it it is very interesting when you look at the money flows. Things are not always – they don't stop at the surface. You got to say, where, where did where do the things go next? And where do they go next? Uh, and that's that's really the issue with, with you know public policy in general. People tend to just look at the first thing.
1: The and first not, layer. Right. And not think
0: about what's behind it or underneath right. it. Absolutely.
1: Well, it sounds like some cronyism involved for sure. And I think that that's, you know, coming back to um, the first example that you gave about people being able to buy houses who maybe wouldn't have been able to buy houses before. It kind of ties into these people who suffered a lot once everything hit the fan um, Mm -hmm. because they were kind of like given this idea that you can have the American dream in a sense, like you can go after it and you can have the home and you can have the white picket fence and you can have all of these things um, that, that should be yours and we're gonna help you out to do it, right? And then it turns out, like I said, it hits the fan, and suddenly now these people are are suffering, and they're going under. And then they can turn around and say, "Well, look, it was, you know, it was Wall Street who did this." And it was uh, then you get all of this anger towards the billionaires, and you get this this anger that is directed towards the cronyism that that these people see in a sense, but maybe not understanding that it's it's just another piece. Of the misregulation puzzle in a sense like cronyism and and giving favors to people and and maybe looking out for your own interests is also tied into the same kinds of misregulations that leads them to be able to have that house that they lost in the first place
0: yeah i think that's right i mean this is this is what makes studying these things hard because there's it's just there's there's sadness behind it. It's just, it's very destructive. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a couple examples related to what you're saying that, that makes it destructive. So one of the things you look at, if you look at the percentage of people who own homes, like, so there's a home ownership rate. President Bush was big owner. He mentioned ownership society. People should, we should own things. People should own their houses, that white picket fence thing. And this is why we're pushing for more affordable housing all this other stuff. You see home ownership jump several percentage points from the late 90s to the mid 2000s and then the crisis hits and it goes right back down to where it was before. So you have this a very temporary jump and a temporary down. And that's because what what President Bush failed to realize is that a home with an enormous mortgage on it and very little equity is just a rental, right? Like technically the deed is in your name, but really it's a, it's a rental. It's not real. You're not really an owner unless you have equity and skin in the game. And part of how we got more people in the houses is we let them not put skin in the game, very Mm -hmm. small down payments. Mm -hmm. And so that's a misunderstanding. And then, like you're right, and then you have these people who spend the money and then go through the traumatic experience of going bankrupt or you know defaulting on their mortgages, being foreclosed on, having to move. And it's that's not pleasant for hundreds of thousands or millions of people. But the, here's the other even worse thing, and this is what we're living with right now, uh, especially in the U.S. If you look at the the median price of a house in 1990, it's somewhere in the vicinity of two and a half times the median income, right? So if you look at how much the, the median person earned in a year, the median house price is about two and a half times that. This is before any of the Community Reinvestment Act stuff, any of the watering down of lending standards, any push towards getting mortgages to people with lower credit scores or higher risk, any of that affordable stuff, or none of this had happened. This is just like mostly market got us here. Then you have this push to make housing more available, to make it easier to get mortgages, to make it easier to get mortgage financing. And guess what? It juices demand. And so you get to the mid-2000s, or let's just go to today, you get to today, and now the median house price is between four and five times the medium annual, median annual wage. Uh, and so houses have become roughly twice as expensive relative to people's wages than they were 30 years ago before we started all of this programming to make it easier to get houses. Right. It, it's these unintended, perverse consequences. The same thing happens in higher ed, by the way, like you subsidize demand to try to make it more affordable. And all you do is you make it more expensive. Uh, and so anyway, so it's tragic in a lot of ways. It makes it, people's lives harder. It's, you know, it's it's again what Reagan said, the scariest phrase in the English language is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And I mean, there's so much truth to that, uh, you know, whether they mean to help or not, it, they often don't.
1: Yeah, no, I I can totally see that. And um, I think it is unfortunate. It's unfortunate for people to go through all of those things. And then to kind of, you know, especially like I said, people who grew up not really understanding exactly what was going on, but just hearing these kind of echoes of these narratives about how it was the failure of markets or the failure of capitalism. And I'm really emphasizing this because it's important today. I mean, we hear that with outfits like the World Economic Forum uh, or any of these NGOs or these supranational organizations, they talk about how it's the end of capitalism, capitalism is dead, uh, and therefore they need to make the system they need to change the system and um you know people are noticing that and what they're noticing as well is that it seems to be that they are not going to be the winners of that new system <laughs> right so yeah. so how is that you know how did all of that i guess transfer did it did did that crisis Start the transfer over. You you mentioned um, wealth and income inequality. Did that uh-huh. exacerbate that problem? And and does that kind of like are these, um, is what we're seeing right now basically an extension of that process?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you if you look at the '80s, the '90s, the early 2000s, you have what some people call the Washington consensus or the kind of neoliberal consensus of free trade, free markets, globalization, democratic government, the end of history, um, as it's been famously put. And the 2008 financial crisis breaks that consensus. It, it Basically the, the financial markets break and then all of a sudden things start to unwind and in that unwinding you have the rise of people who are championing other alternative approaches and and they like to beat up on the washington consensus it's sort of like deregulation free markets that's what got us into this mess That's created create all these problems and so that's why capitalism is over and done and we need something else uh and it's It's, again, I think a misreading of what was going on, of what caused the crisis. Um, Let let me give you another example. So there's – I think he's a German scholar, Gunther Schnabel, who's written a few pieces. He talks about something he calls financial repression. And he has some very interesting and good things to say about how ultra-low interest rates that we saw in the U.S. and around the world coming out of this crisis has fueled wealth inequality right? Because they they reinflated the housing bubble. So mm-hmm. houses are worth or, – or their value is much higher today than it was at the peak of 2007. Uh, so people who own houses are spectacularly wealthy, especially if they own a couple houses, right? They've seen their net worth increase dramatically over the last 15 years. Stock prices are also high. And so you see this kind of juicing Of asset prices through these ultra-low interest rates, which disproportionately benefits people who hold assets, right? Who tend to be wealthier to begin with. Uh, And so that creates more of the, you know, this income and wealth inequality people point to. It's sort of like, well, look at look at ultra-low interest rate policies. It's not free market capitalism that's doing this. It is very concerted Federal Reserve monetary policy that's driving a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one piece. The other piece of it is that these ultra-low interest rates have distorted investments, the things that people have invested in and companies. And it's actually, he argues, I think, pretty persuasively, that it has reduced productivity growth. So it actually, not only has it created wealth disparity, it's it's also affected income disparity, where a lot of jobs have seen relatively little productivity growth because their industries, where those jobs are, did not see as much investment as they otherwise might have because of the distortions mm. of ultra-low interest rates and funding all kinds of projects. The, the the power of Silicon Valley is in part due to this, right? Like they, you have a super low interest rate. What that means, it's also people call it the discount rate. And so it means that future potential profits – are worth a lot more today when the discount rate is zero than when the discount rate is ten percent, and so the the meteoric rise of certain Silicon Valley companies, mm-hmm. in terms of their company valuations, their stock prices, is very much tied to this ultra low interest rate environment. So if you're worried about The disproportionate development of tech relative to manufacturing as some people on the right are like American Compass or if you're worried about stagnating wages among sort of middle class or blue collar folks, low – artificially low interest rates are part of the story and I think they're often overlooked in creating this kind of financial repression, Schnabel calls it, this kind of reduction of of wage growth and um, disparities of wealth.
1: So you mentioned something else as well, and this is something I'd like to understand more. Um, so it's that it, the government benefits from those low interest rates as well. Can you explain yes. how?
0: Sure. So the, I mean, the low interest rates make the political cost, well, they make the economic cost, which then translate into the political cost. It makes it less costly For politicians to spend more money than they raise in taxes. Right. So like when they
1: sign a bill, when they say, Okay, we're signing the Inflation Reduction Act and we're gonna spend this amount of money, like we no longer need to go into the taxpayer's money here. We can just go and is that is that and where do they where do they get the money? They they borrow money then. Yes.
0: they borrow money from the market, which often makes its way to the Fed's balance sheet, which is called monetizing the debt. So we can talk through that process if you want, but the the idea yeah. of the low interest rates here is, so let's say I'm a politician in 1987, right? Let's say 1987, and I'm looking at the federal budget, and let's say we go a billion dollars over budget, right? That's our deficit, that's what we borrow. In a world of 8% interest rates, that's an extra uh, $80 million in interest costs annually that we have to pay. Or, you know, if you go to 10 trillion, it's an extra $800 million, right? So you've got, versus in a world where interest rates are a quarter of a percent, Mm -hmm. now we're talking about 2.5 million. You can borrow a billion dollars and use, you know, your interest cost goes up by two and a half million, right? Which is almost nothing. and so what's happened is borrowing has become less costly and less burdensome in a zero or near zero interest rate environment. And so that's why you get to the point where you have this sort of rapid escalation of, I, I mentioned this in an article I'm writing recently, of uh, you know, at the time in 2008 when the Troubled Asset Relief Program was passed, it was you know, $650, $700 billion, and people were just like aghast. At how expensive that was like oh my gosh is this enormous program like it's nothing like this and then in 2009 we have uh 800 billion dollar stimulus program under obama but you look at the last three and a half years we've got four to six trillion dollars of stimulus plans of various kinds it's that how is that possible it's possible because in the interim borrowing was seemed basically costless and with that basically costless borrowing all of a sudden, what does it matter whether the government runs a $400 billion deficit or an $800 billion deficit or this year a $2 trillion deficit? Uh, again, it's it's not good thinking because we're not in a low-interest rate environment. And even in that environment, there's other costs. But I think politically, politicians have not are not having to make hard choices when it comes to spending in a low-interest rate environment that they're going to have to make in a high-industry environment. And this, by the way, sorry, one other thing, this connects to what I was just talking about that Schnabel points out, is another effect of this low interest rate, ultra-low interest rate environment, is that government spending balloons. And so a lot more resources from the economy are being used, or perhaps more likely wasted, by government than are actually going into productive investment and activity.
1: Let's go back now a little bit in time and think about, okay, what actually happened during that crisis? Like, how did it go down? You talk a little bit in your book about, or actually a lot in your book about inconsistent bailouts, about you know certain firms being bailed out, other ones not, and that kind of leading to the instability. And you spoke about it a little bit earlier as well, You know, certain firms that mm-hmm. were bailed out and others that were not. So like, how did the whole thing unravel? And can you give us a little bit of the big picture?
0: Yeah, I'll try. You know, it's always hard to tell how much detail to go into, but uh, I'll give a a very high overview and then maybe we can drill down on it if we want to. So if you want to understand the 2008 financial crisis, I think there's a couple stages to it. So there's the fall of 2007, which is basically the, the rumblings, if you will, that something is not quite right. You've got some different credit markets that are starting to freeze, some unusual things are starting to happen. And people are kind of saying, you know, th- this is odd, right? So you have um, certain banks freezing certain funds because there's no price for the assets in those funds. Like um, BNP Paratus oh, yes. of a French yes. bank did this. Um, so you've got some of these things going on in the fall. You go into the spring. The economy is slowing down. The price of oil is rising. We're kind of moving towards a recession. Federal Reserve begins cutting interest rates. And then the first kind of shock was the investment firm Bear Stearns basically going bankrupt over a weekend where you know their stock price had kind of gotten hammered and they went into a weekend and coming out of the weekend it was announced that J.P. Morgan was taking them over for a few dollars a share. Um, that was a big surprise, right? And that was a sign of something is not right. Something bad is going on in the economy. And they had mortgage-backed
1: securities, right?
0: They did, They did, yep. And part of what happened, they actually had created two new hedge funds in two thousand seven that were focusing on mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. And within months, they actually closed and unrolled them. Like these funds lasted a couple months, so that was the you know egg on their face. But yeah, mortgage-backed securities. What what happened (coughs) um, is. Yeah, the mortgage-backed securities are to blame. There, there was a run in something called the shadow banking system. So, a lot of these large banks and financial institutions borrow money in what's called the commercial paper market. So, if you're um, if you're like the California Teachers Retirement Program, Calpers, right? You've got a hundred plus billion dollars. You're not gonna put that in a bank account. You're not going to like open up a $10 billion bank account at Wells Fargo, right? That doesn't make any sense. So what do you do with the money? You know, Some of it's in long-term investments, but some of it you want to have liquid. And so you have to find out, okay, where can I deposit deposit this money to get some interest rate? But I don't want to just put it in a bank because that's a lot of risk and there's not much interest rate mm-hmm. return. What you do is you lend your money in a very short-term way in the commercial paper market. So. You might lend five billion dollars to Bear Stearns for two weeks. Oh. Right. As a, a commercial paper note. And so you might say, well, well, what can Bear Stearns do in two weeks with $5 billion? Well, what happens is you've got a low interest rate, this two week deal. At the end of two weeks, Bear Stearns comes back and says, Hey, here's your interest. What do you say we do it again? Well, let us roll it over another two mm. weeks. And so it's it's a lot, it's very much like a deposit. Like we have at a bank, only you have these intervals—one week, two weeks. Sometimes it's overnight. Sometimes it's a month. But these very—you have these these intervals. But otherwise, it's basically like a deposit. You just keep rolling it over. And so Bear Stearns will borrow tens of billions of dollars. Lehman borrows tens of billions of dollars in this market. The problem, though is that people aren't obligated to roll it over, right? Bear Stearns could come back at the end of two weeks and say, hey, here's your interest. Can we roll it over and borrow the five billion for another two weeks? And CalPERS might say, you know, maybe not. We'll lend you four billion instead of five. Well, then Bear Stearns has to come up with an extra billion dollars like Hmm. that. And uh, in a world where the market is unsettled or their assets are not priced very well or whatever, they might have a very hard time doing that. And so this is where people talk about haircuts, the value of assets were beginning to fall on the market, and then also what people were able to borrow, what large financial firms were able to borrow was also falling. You're getting these haircuts, higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the point is that part of what drove Bear's problems is the way that they were financed involved a lot of the short-term debt, and their assets they held weren't very good. And so as they were less able to borrow, they had to sell their assets, which had fallen in value, so they had to take losses, and they also pushed down the price of those assets because they're flooding the market with their mortgage-backed securities trying to raise cash to make up for the borrowing they can't do. Um, and this, is, uh, this happens with Lehman Brothers and others as well. So that's kind of why it happens very quickly. Um, it, ultimately, it's the, the problem of the underlying assets, but that problem is amplified by the borrowing model, this kind of short-term commercial paper
1: borrowing model. Okay. Um, so what happened next? What happens? All of this goes yeah, down so, and then and then what do we see?
0: Right. Yeah. So so Bear Stearns gets put together like the, the Federal Reserve, by the way, stepped in to broker this deal with JP Morgan. So they took a bunch of the risk. They provided JP Morgan a bunch of money to make the purchase. They lended money to JP Morgan to purchase it. So the the government's fingerprints are all over this bear deal. Mm-hmm. This is in March. Uh, there's a small a, a small <laughs> stimulus bill, Planner Bush, of like 200 and some billion dollars, or maybe $300 billion, right? Small by today's terms, but fairly large at the time. Uh, things are relatively quiet until late July when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are these massive government-sponsored enterprises that buy mortgages and bundle them and sell mortgage-backed securities, massive, huge part of the mortgage market, they fail and are taken over by the government. And so they're they're basically rolled up into the government and operated that way. Uh, and then the next thing, really, if you think about the 2008 financial crisis, it was really the fall of 2008. A lot of people point to Lehman Brothers bankruptcy in September, September 15th, as the beginning of that. And I understand that reasoning because that was a big event. Lehman failure was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history at the time. Um but I don't think that really triggered the crisis. I think the worst part of the 2008 financial crisis actually happened around the passage of TARP, the bailout program. And so, again, economist um, John Taylor makes this point really well in a little booklet about getting off track, where he says, look, if you look at the steepest declines of the stock market and the biggest risk spreads and other, measure, but other measures, you see that it's really at the time TARP is passed and like the two to three weeks after TARP, is really the panic. It's really where the crisis blows up, which is a little bit surprising if you think about it because TARP was messaged as the way to fix the problem. And yet the the biggest one-day declines, the longest stretch of sort of stock market crashing happens post-TARP. And why is that? I think there's two reasons. One is because the way TARP was messaged and the way it was pushed through Congress was the Great Depression is coming – the financial system is falling apart unless we get $650 billion to put into <laughs> it. That doesn't make stock investors feel very good. When people are saying that, they're like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, I better switch to cash. I got to pull yeah. stuff out. So there's this panic component. And then the other thing is that TARP, it was, as it was originally conceived, was totally ineffective. The idea was that the troubled asset relief Program. we're going to take this money and we're going to buy troubled assets these bad mortgage securities to get them off of banks balance sheets right that was a bad idea that wasn't going to work for two reasons one there's trillions of dollars of this stuff right 650 billion is not nearly enough to buy all of it and then two the other problem is that you're not really solving banks problems the banks problems are that they have no liquidity mm-hmm. Uh, their their reserves have been shrinking, their capital cushion has been declining because as the value of their assets have fallen. Just swapping out bad assets for cash doesn't actually make banks able to lend more. And so what happens is the market realizes or they're told things are really bad in the economy, and they look at this program and they're like, well, that program is clearly not going to fix whatever problems you have. Panic. And the panic ends, and again, John Taylor makes this point well, it ends very directly when they change the program. And they say, Oh, actually, we're not gonna buy troubled assets. We're gonna take this money and we're going to inject it directly into banks. We're gonna add to their capital cushion. We're gonna take, you know, ownership stakes. And the reason that matters is because that capital cushion, because of the the lever the way banks worked with leverage finance, that capital actually leverages how much they can lend exponentially so you can you know do 10 or 20x mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the capital investment and so all of a sudden then markets are like okay that makes more sense that can work and and the panic stops i mean we still have a couple months of not great economic performance but the the real panic the worst part in sort of october early november of 2008 comes to an end when they Clarify how TARP's going to work.
1: And so what happens after that then as well, Paul, is that then they lower the interest rates artificially, or do they they hike them up? They lowered them before. They've been... For how many years? They lowered them
0: before... Well, so this is actually, going back to the earlier part of our conversation about misregulation, this is actually the third misregulation. Mm-hmm. So the first misregulation was uh, watering down uh, underwriting standards. And then the second one was encouraging banks to load up on mortgage-backed securities because they don't have to hold much capital. The third misregulation, it's not exactly regulation, I guess, but it's government error, mm-hmm. is that under Greenspan, post-2001 and post-9-11, Greenspan lowered interest rates too low for too long and you know it might say it might be easy to say too low for too long what does that mean it actually is a very specific mm-hmm. meaning which is if you look at we talked earlier about the monetary rule about the taylor rule you look at how the fed behaved in the 80s and the 90s and you apply that taylor rule to the 2000s taylor rule says interest rates should drop to three percent for a year and then rise to whatever four four and a half five instead green spend lowers them to two for two years and then slowly so like it's too low for too long as compared to the Taylor rule mm. or in other words, the way the Fed used to do it. So we've got this kind of benchmark, if you will, by which to judge, oh, it was too low for too long. Again John Taylor, I've mentioned him a lot he said this is like what he does um, has shown this, I think very well too. Uh, and that has an impact on housing prices, right? It makes it easier to borrow, easier to get leverage. So that is, again, fueling, right, the fire of lower quality underwriting standards. So that's the third kind of government error. So that's low the And then, and this is what's you know brings us up to today, you have this low interest rate too low for too long, and then they ratchet it up really quickly. Mm. Like two thousand and four to two thousand and six, they go from like two percent to over five percent. And all of a sudden, for all this mortgage finance, the adjustable rate stuff, the housing prices, it doesn't work with five, five and a half, six percent mortgage rates. Uh, and this is where defaults begin to to rise pretty dramatically. Ah. And then they begin lowering it again. So by the end of 2008, it's near zero. And the Fed is engaged in other kind. They've created programs to lend banks billions and billions of dollars overnight. So they, they're doing a whole bunch of other stuff besides putting interest rates low to try to provide liquidity and and uh, bail different banks so out. So that's where you say they become more
1: activist in a way, like they start doing absolutely. More things. Absolutely. Okay, so like if
0: absolutely. So
1: if we think about then this the same kind of environment that we saw then, then they lower the interest rates, and then you know they've they've been low for pretty long, right? I mean, yep. Maybe too yep. low for too long since then. Since until, then, yeah. Until now basically. Right. So what do you see That's what do right. you see in today that you could have seen back then? What are the parallels or or maybe even to go further did all of this is this just kind of another reverberation of the same crisis kind of like it bounced and now boom it's a, <clears throat> Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no it's it's a great question and I mean I was in grad school and out of grad school Post 2008. And there was a big conversation. So the first couple of years after 2008, and I was in this camp, we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to see massive inflation, maybe even hyperinflation because of these super low interest rates, this massive expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, and that never materialized, right? We just did not see much inflation, at least consumer inflation over that period. Housing price inflation, housing prices have gone through the roof. You know, we might not make it into to this show here, but. For listeners, if you just go to the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, St. Louis, they have a whole database. You just look up uh, like homeowner equity in the U.S., you'll find that homeowner equity has risen 30 to $40 trillion over the last 12 years because housing prices have risen so much. Uh, so, yeah, we haven't seen consumer inflation, right? The price of cars is not that much higher. The price of, you know… Uh, milk and eggs is not that much higher, but the price of assets is a different story. Uh, but anyway, so so there was concern about that didn't really materialize until twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, when you have this massive government spending that accompanies this super low interest rate environment, and those and and the Federal Reserve expansion. its balance sheet, and those two things coming together is what really fueled you know, the highest inflation we'd seen in 40 plus years, uh, was was those two things coming together. And now in the response, interest rates have risen faster than they ever have, I think, in US history. I mean, we've gone from like 0.25% to 5.25% in, you know, a year, less than a year and a half.
1: And do you think that there are also other ways that that, crisis and the way that the crisis was responded to just conditioned policymakers, bureaucrats, politicians, and the general public as well to just kind of to think differently about the role of uh, organizations to come in, and regulate these things more and to manage things and to kind of get their hands in there and to try and fix things. Like, did that, did that also set us up to, to do the things that we did in 2021, like print all of this money and to, and to behave differently?
0: Yeah, I, um, I think so, you know, so we don't necessarily want to go too far into this, but the, the Silicon Valley bank issue is very much tied into this in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, so one way in which it's tied in is that their collapse was very closely related to the, the uh, quick rise in interest rates, right, where they had all these bonds mm-hmm. that were worth a certain face value at low interest rates, and then when interest rates went really high, the value of those bonds fell, and they lost a ton of money, and then people panicked, and so it collapsed. You know, without that massive increase in interest rates, it probably would have been fine, right? Silicon Valley Bank probably would have been fine and still be around. So that's one piece of, like, this policy uncertainty injection. Second piece, related to what you were just saying, the Fed had no hesitation. The FDIC had no hesitation whatsoever to go in and say, oh, yeah, we're going to guarantee all the deposits. Right. It right. was like just like, of course we would set, do that. Right? Of of course, Yeah, of course we would do that. Why would we not? Do? It'd be crazy not mm-hmm. to do that. So yeah, the 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 perspective is, of course we bail them out. Um, and that, again, is a, is a carryover from 2008. Uh, and unfortunately, I think for now, the assessment is job well done, right? You know, it's just a blip, you know, a little road bump, a little speed bump on the road. And, you know, we haven't seen as much fallout as I thought we would see. And I think the other shoe hasn't quite dropped yet for a variety of reasons. But it looks like they were right in how they handled it. Like the what could have been a disaster with, you know, Silicon Valley and Signature and and then First Republic not mm-hmm. later really hasn't disrupted things that much. So unfortunately, I think that's going to lend credence to this idea of oh yeah we can just sort of bail stuff out and that will make smooth things over and it'll be fine. Uh, I think with, that remains to be seen. But for now, you know, their case has the upper hand. But then there's this third thing that I will just mention uh, to you about the unintended consequences. And this is an unintended consequence of of misregulation. So there's a book, another book on the crisis I recommend called Engineering the Financial Crisis Mm -hmm. by um, Friedman and and Krause. And one of the things they point out, that they're misregulation people, but one of the things they point out is that there are so many regulations that we often don't know or can't know how different regulations will interact with each other, right? So, if you think about this, think about this like with medicine with the body, right? There's a lot of different medicines you can take. And increasingly, when people have multiple prescriptions or have doing things, there's more conversation with the doctor of like, well, this ingredient interacts with that ingredient in a bad way. So, don't take these two things at the same time, right? And regulations are meant to be medicine, right, for the economy, but we've got thousands, tens of thousands of different ingredients we're putting in the economy, restrictions on borrowing, restrictions on lending, restrictions on what can be produced, and they interact in unexpected ways. So let me give you an example that that, um, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic shows. Post-2008, you have the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, right, largest regulatory bill in U.S. history, clamping down on – uh, banks, especially too-big-to-fail banks, putting all these rules, all these burdens on them. So you have this this regulation bill that's put in place. Fast forward to 2018 under President Trump and Republican control of Congress, and you have modifications to uh, Dodd-Frank, which is basically, hey, these regulations are really burdensome, so if you're a bank below a certain size, we're going to exempt you from a lot of these regulatory burdens because you don't have as much compliance, you're not as systemically important, You know, we want to reduce your costs. And so this is sort of like a deregulatory kind of thing, but it's not exactly, right? Because it's not actually undoing the first rate. It's just sort of modifying it. So now how does this affect Silicon Valley Bank? So what happens when Silicon Valley Bank begins to fail or people panic, pull their money out? All of a sudden in the market, people have – we have a two-tiered banking system. You may have heard this, right, where people say, oh, there's the banks that we know will never Mm -hmm. fail. But then all these other banks that are below that threshold that don't have to do Dodd-Frank and they're – well, who knows what's going to happen to them. And so this is why you have the regional banks versus the big national banks. And again, this is just a, this this whole complex web of regulations interacting in unpredictable ways that create unexpected outcomes and problems. Especially if you are an investor in a regional bank, or you work at a regional bank, or you know, and it creates weird dynamics of these massive national banks that get bigger over time. Um, so anyway, that's another kind of fallout, if you will, of this crisis of you know, crisis in 8 Dodd Frank in 2010 modifications to Dodd-Frank in 2018 blows up in 2023 with Silicon Valley and regional banks, right? We're kind of interesting to put it all together. Nobody would have predicted that. Nobody would have been like, oh yeah, 2008, we're going to have this two-tiered bank system in 10 years, 15 years, and then this is going to blow. Nobody could have known that ahead of time. It's too complex, Um, but it's a problem with complex regulation.
1: So, all right, I'm going to read something from your book here, which I think kind of sums it up, which is from the introduction of your book. You say, this book will give you a comprehensive overview of competing explanations regarding the conditions that created the crisis, what happened during the crisis, and what kinds of solutions will reduce the likelihood of future crises. The conventional wisdom that free markets or capitalism failed and that greater regulation and restrictions are necessary are mostly wrong. At the end of the day, government interventions created most of the conditions for the crisis and fostered uncertainty, panic, and inefficiency, both during and after the crisis. Not only did these interventions make the crisis worse, they slowed economic growth and reduced prosperity for the entire decade that followed. So, all right, we've gone into some detail about this thing. And it's a complex thing. So obviously, we haven't covered all of the ground. And you have a whole book written about it, which people can read, um, that gives your perspective and gives some of your arguments. But I mean, Paul, what, what could have been, let's say this was a market scenario, right like let's say let's say it was a different world it was a parallel universe it's 2007 2008 like let's say that up until that point all of the misregulation and things had happened right so what is mm-hmm. what is the kind of market solution the non-intervention kind of solution to a crisis like that
0: yeah that's a great question i mean i think there's certainly some proactive things that could be done uh, in terms of, of tweaking certain regulations like mark-to-market accounting and some other things that might have eased the crisis. But really, the the solution is relatively simple, which is to sit back and do nothing, right? Like if the Fed, the federal government had not stepped in with Bear Stearns and brokered that deal, we might not have had a Lehman Brothers in the fall. And because we know Lehman Brothers had an offer on the table to be acquired in the summer, and they turned it down saying, well, that price is too low. Worst case, we get a bear deal, right? They were not thinking bankruptcy was in the picture because of the bear deal. So that's one part of it. But even more broadly than that, like, let's say that I'm overly optimistic here. Let's say that uh, the, the doomsdayers were right, that things would have been worse without tarp without federal intervention i'm willing to grant that if if they're willing to grant to me greater market efficiency after the fact and so one of the things i highlight at the end of my book is if we had had robust growth coming out of the crisis and, and what does robust growth looks like just average growth so economists go back and look at all the recessions over the past 70 years And they say, okay, what is the average rate of of growth coming out of a a crisis, coming out of a recession? And the growth coming out of a recession tends to be higher than your average growth. It tends to be around four, four and a half percent in real terms annually. Mm. If we had had that growth, what we ended up having was like two percent or a little bit less than two percent, like between one and a half and a low two, 2.2 or whatever for like a decade. If we had had four or four and a half percent GDP growth, The stock market could have gone quite a bit lower. The recession could have been deeper. The economy could have contracted quite a bit more and we still would have been better off as a country 10 years later if the economy was functioning and recovered normally without what ended up happening is it didn't recover normally. It was hobbled by massive regulation, by inefficiencies of the companies that did a bad job managing capital were kept around. Uh, there was uncertainty and panic that was created. So we would have had so – to, to, to sum it up, doing nothing, I argue, would have made for a much healthier economy, even if it would have been more painful for a time, would have left us coming out of it with a much healthier economy, healthier wage growth, healthier job growth, healthier economic expansion for the 10 following years and after. And that would have been a much better world than the one we currently live in.
1: Well, I think, Paul, what happens is that people get used to that intervention, right? They they get used to seeing the can kick down the road. And... Their problems in that can being kicked down further and further or, or so it appears. So I, I think mm-hmm. it's something like the more that we, we keep acting this way and intervening and creating these kind of artificial circumstances and interrupting the processes of the market, uh, the, you know, the more of a mess that we get into, the deeper we get into it. And it's actually harder to extract from that because there are so many layers. Right. And, and in my question, I asked you, you know, what would be a market solution with all of the conditions that led up to it, which were not, you know, they were kind of artificial conditions and misregulation and things like that. Right. So it's like, we keep doing more of that and more of that and more of that. Like, um, I think that it's 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 tough to get out of it because the people expect the politicians to do something as well, right? Coming back to the people who go and then look at, you know, Occupy Wall Street that movement, uh, or people who lost their homes within that, they can say, "Well, Paul, it's easy to say sitting there that you allow things to just fail and you kind of do nothing and and you wait for the growth, um, but but we need solutions now, and then we end up kind of in the same." problems over and over
0: it's true I mean it's a deep it's it's a deep political economy problem of uh, how do you how do you transition if you will how do you how do you transition from a world of dependency to a world of more independence I mean we see this let's just give you another example I mean we see this with Social Security everybody well not everybody but almost everybody knows Social security is a train wreck, right? It is completely unsustainable. It's not going to work. Uh, the longer we wait, the bigger the problem. But the transition, right, to to make it sustainable, to, to, to move away from this sort of worker pays, current retirees, is painful. And no one's willing to make that transition, put up the money, whatever it is. And so we don't. And the problem gets worse. And that is like a microcosm of like, we know it's not working. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult and costly to get to a world where things are working better, even though that's going to be a better world. And how do you persuade people to stick it out, right? To tough it out. Uh, It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. I think we have some historical examples where that transition might be faster than people expect if we are really serious about deregulating. So you see this when price controls are dropped or you see this when, Um, You know, kind of the shock therapy of Eastern Bloc countries moving towards market economies, Mm -hmm. very rough transition, but actually a lot shorter than most people thought before things began to normalize again. Um, So I'm of the view that if you have kind of a plan and you can really explain what's going to happen and why, that, you know, maybe you can persuade enough people, hey, we're going to we're going to kind of we just got to stick this out. We're going to stick this out. And here's why it's going to be better. And here's why we're going to transition to this. And here's what it's going to mean for the rest of your life, for your children's lives. Like we're thinking long term here and not about the next election cycle. And again, that's the challenge of in, in D.C. The people who are making these decisions have kind of two or four year time horizons. Uh, they're not right. thinking in terms of 20 or 30 or 50 years. That's uh, a public but choice thing, right? if you go to the voter... Yeah. That's right. But voters, but ordinary people like they should be thinking beyond this year and next year and they should be thinking 10 years, 20 years, 50 years out. What's the kind of world we want to live in? And what's the kind of world we want our children to live in? And what are we willing to sacrifice or risk to get there? That's that's really I think what we need to talk to people about.
1: You know, I think that's a great answer and and it comes back to the the two kind of solutions that that we can look at it that way. There are two kinds of solutions that we're faced with right now. Like this whole situation is not sustainable to do this kind of thing anymore. So, um, or we have a great reset basically. And that, and that's more regulation, more intervention, you know, so either we free up the markets or we end up with this like very controlled situation. And, and it's it's funny because there's a big push towards more control, and people are not happy about that. And people are, mm-hmm. are have lost faith in the idea of markets, though, to come in and fix things, or maybe they're not necessarily educated about that. So um, this is what I, I hope that we can share with people here.
0: Yeah, well, Kate, I think you're right. I mean, the thing I'll say about that, too, is that you're right. Things are getting bad. But I think that that does present an opportunity in the sense of the worse things are currently, the less people have to lose, right? Of like, no one's happy with the gridlock that we have. Nobody's happy with the polarization. No one's happy with, you know, slow wage growth or, you know, whatever. Pick pick your problem, right? The more dissatisfied people are, The less that they're likely to have to sacrifice to change things. Um, But I think you're right. I think you're right in terms of it also is dangerous because people might just say, well, maybe Bernie Sanders has a point. Maybe we need to just move this way because I don't like where we are. And so let's just try something radical. Like the whole revolutionary moment we live in, culturally revolutionary moment we live in, is based, I think, on this dissatisfaction. And so this is why it's more important than ever. To make not just the material case for markets, right, that it makes us more prosperous, but the moral case that that markets make for a better world and that freedom makes for a better world, a more beautiful world, a world where we can flourish and enjoy life together better than these alternatives.
1: Yeah, and I would add to that as well, Paul. I think also the case for liberty for liberty's sake, right? Like markets allow people to be more free. They allow people to trade between themselves, to have less control over over so many aspects of their lives. Um, and just that on its own is something that I think, with the loss of freedoms that we've been seeing in the in the last few years, especially. With the dial turned up, people are starting to appreciate that. And there's something to be said about how markets are also inextricable from freedom because the political system and the economic system, uh you you can't separate the two. You can't say, well, we'll have, you know, a, a hyper-controlled uh, economy and markets, but people will be free. We'll, we'll, we'll let them be. It, it, it's not it's not coherent, it doesn't make sense. It's it's all or nothing in a way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's chapter and verse Friedman, right? First chapter, capitalism and freedom, economic versus political freedom and how they're both necessary and interrelated. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: well listen, um, we've covered a lot of ground Uh, This has been a really wonderful conversation, and I am sure, I hope that you will come back again. I would love to have you back and explore this more in depth and some different topics as well. Um, Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience?
0: Uh, Well, I just would say this about, you know, the 2008 financial crisis is an interesting period. We've talked about how it relates to these things. I think I would say this, because sometimes I get asked this. I think whatever comes next is not going to look quite the same. Like as people say, oh, is it the student debt bubble? Is it we're gonna see another housing crash? another I think it's just gonna look I think we will see problems and probably another kind of crisis, but uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna be connected to what came before, but it's also I think gonna look different in certain ways. And again, I, I don't have a crystal ball to know exactly how, but just encourage people, draw connections, but also not to assume that things are going to play out exactly the way they used to, just because a lot of conditions have changed in the world. So I think something is coming. I don't know how bad, how bad the crisis will be or when, but it'll look a little different, I think, than what we saw in 2008.
1: Okay. Well, maybe that could be a a good starting point for our next podcast. (laughs) Sounds (laughs) good. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you.